Hello and welcome to Splatter Chatter, where October never dies. My name is Mr. Craigers and I am one of the hosts of Splatter Chatter. And I am Ms. Melmore. I am your other host of Splatter Chatter. The other host of Splatter Chatter. Yours and the. Both. Yours and the and everybody's and mine and yourself. Hosting yourself. Mm-hmm. And this is episode 89. And it is also our very special eighth installment of our Friday the 13th series in which we are going to be discussing Rob Hedden's Friday the 13th part eight, Jason Takes Manhattan, starring Kane Hodder, Jensen Daggett, and Scott Reeves. Now, if you're not familiar with our Friday the 13th series, essentially every time Friday the 13th rolls around on the calendar, we cover a subsequent installment from the aforementioned series. We're working our way slowly but surely all the way up to the remake. I mean, now we're in the latter half of things, right? Yeah. Like yeah. we're we're getting there. We're getting up there. Jason X is on the horizon. Honestly, that's the one Ms. Mel has been looking <laughs> forward to the most uh, since we started. We are only two away, or we'll be two away from that after tonight's episode. But before we talk about um you know, Jason's first real vacation that he ever takes. Uh, we're going to do some horror headlines slash, um, you know, what have you been reading, watching, listening to in terms of spooky horror things. And Miss Melmoy actually has some Friday the 13th related activity that she's been up to that she's going to share with us. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure, I have and I do and I will. Um... <laughs> As I mentioned last episode, I had tickets to see Friday the 13th Part 2 on Friday, August 6th, which if you do the math, (laughs) or I guess it was August 5th, but either way, either way, there was no acknowledgement, by the way, that next week was a Friday the 13th, like (laughs) nobody brought it up. That everyone, that it was a week off. Yeah. Um, but yes, there was there was a showing of Friday the Thirteenth Part Two at the Colonial Theater, famously the Blob Theater, um, and there was a signing and photo op and Q and A, Q and A with um, oh, Lauren. Gosh darn it, she's got three names. She plays Vicky. Should have memorized she's one of those three namesers. Yeah. Um, hold on, I'm pulling it up real quick. Lauren Marie Taylor. Lauren Marie Taylor. Who played Vicki Perry. Yes. She was in attendance. Um, and she's fantastic. She clearly has seen this movie so many times. I bet. Because she just sat in the back of the theater. And every time something happened, she had her quip, like, ready to go. Nice. Like, um, you know, the scene after the guy um, in the wheelchair gets, like, axed in the face. Yeah. And she comes back in and she doesn't know everyone's dead. And she's looking for him and she hears a noise upstairs and she goes upstairs. Lauren Marie Taylor was like, how do you get upstairs? <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, what are you doing? What are you doing? Um, but yeah, no, she had like some a fun. A bit of like a actress commentary. During yeah, it. no, that's basically because she, she did some, she did a signing, she did some pictures and then they had a little Q&A where she talked about some of the stuff, you know, like they stayed in the camp you know, they were in the cabins um, when they stayed there. She was talking about all the different members of the cast she tried to hit on and struck out with. 
um she was saying that they told her that they casted her because they wanted for that part a girl who looked like the like quote unquote like all american girl but not sexy oh my god what a thing to be told yeah so there's that um and um yeah the one of the funnier tidbits she had she said that um one day, like her daughter, who I guess at the time was like 13 or 14, came into the house um, to come back from a sleepover. And she's standing in the kitchen and she was like, why didn't you tell me? And she was like, what? What, what are you talking about? And she's like, you didn't tell me you were in a horror movie. Because I guess at the sleepover, they had turned on Friday the 13th Part it. 2. And everyone was like, that looks like your mom. <laughs> and she was, was like, like oh, yeah, she was like, oh, my God. Um but yeah, no, that was great. And then she watched it with us in the theater, had various little things to say. Like at one point when What's-His-Face does the slingshot um, mm. and she's like, look, she, she's going to grab the wrong buttocks because <laughs> I guess it hits one cheek and she grabs the other. And she grabs the other one. Um, but yeah, no, it was very fun. Um, and then I actually have tickets to next month. They're doing Blair Witch. Um, nice. on the only 35 millimeter cut that exists of the film that's cool um that's on september 10th so nice little birthday gift um i also have tickets to on october 24th they are doing a showing of the original 1920s i forget the exact date but the lon cheney fan of the opera oh with nice the live 25. organ accompaniment because this used oh, to be an opera house that's cool yeah the theater was an opera house before it was a movie theater. Oh, that's going to be really fun. Yeah. So I'm very excited about that. Um, and then the following, at the beginning of November, I have tickets to the Exhumed Film Festival. Nice. So that's t- technically 25 hours because it's daylight savings, 14 films, and they don't tell you what films they are. You just, Ooh. you find out as you go. So those are all the things. <laughs> Well, yeah, that's like, that's a good lineup going into your fall, early winter time. Yeah, no, I'm quite excited. Um, also, thank God for masks, because I saw somebody I graduated high school with at this showing, and I did not want to talk to him. <laughs> yep, just, just hide behind, pull that mask even farther up, you know? Yeah, no, this is just face, chin to, chin to forehead. Um, but yeah, no, it was very... Shield it. It was very fun, very good stuff. What have you been up to? Cool. Um, I have, I feel like I've been watching a lot lately. Um, rewatching some things, you know, throwing a lot of stuff on where I've just been like, yeah, I haven't seen this in a while. Da, 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 da. Like, um, Lucy, I rewatched Sinister, and also watching some new stuff. Um, I think I tweeted about The Empty Man and um, The Boy Behind the Door. Those are both ones that are standing out to me now. That was a butt clencher, man. <laughs> that was a, I was on the edge of my seat, my literal seat, and then the actual seat. Um, yeah, just sort of, I don't know, just been watching a lot lately um and all of it pretty good nothing nothing too bad um 
Yeah, this is that time, that time in the summer, you know, we're in the last third of summer, fall, it's not like here yet, (laughs) but yeah, it's like, I'm anticipating fall, I'm thinking about Halloween, I'm thinking about decorating for Halloween, and like, so, tis the season. As it were. As it were. Speaking of the fall, you also have composed your fall reading list. I have. I'm looking at it. You can see it on the the Twitter. Um, There's a nice picture of it. They're in no particular order. Um, I just piled them up. Um, But we have, let's see. Oh, my goodness. We have um, Things Have Gotten Worse Since Last We Spoke by Eric LaRocca. We have Flowers in the Attic by V.C. Andrews. We have October. a classic. Yes, I've not. I've never read it, so I'm excited. I um, haven't either, actually. We have uh, the October Country by Ray Bradbury, uh, Imaginary Friend by Stephen Chabotsky, The Troop by Nick Cutter, nice. and then the Ghost Variations, which I it says Kevin uh, Brock Meyer, but I feel like that's. He was the editor. I, I think that's a collection of short stories from multiple authors. I can't remember. But if it's not, good job, Kevin. <laughs> Great job, Kevin. Either way, you know what, Kevin? You crushed it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's what I got going on. That's good stuff. I'm probably also going to read The Troop this spooky season and maybe mm-hmm. also Imaginary Friend because those are two that I've had sitting around for a while now. And... Um, yeah, maybe it's time time to get to them. Whip them out. Those two definitely been wanting to read them for a while. I'll probably get around to them this spooky season. Maybe we can like coordinate our yeah. reading of those two titles. Yeah. Do a little book club. Splatterchatter book club. Splatterchatter book club with the troop and imaginary friend. Yeah. I've also never read October Country. Neither have I. I've picked it up several times and almost done it. Um, because yeah. I feel like sometimes you really have to be in a mood to like tackle a collection of short stories, but I Definitely. feel like this is the mood. Yeah. That's, that's a mood I can get on board with. Collections of short stories, like just so often send me back to school. Right. You know? And so I'm always like, Ugh. well, and I'm reading um that right now that George Saunders book, that's like, he goes through those, the four Russian short stories and then like, yeah. them down, which is I've fine. Read, it's interesting. Part of that. He just, he, and I knew this because I, like, I have heard other interviews with him. He is just such a perfectionist that I would drive myself nuts if I was in one of his classes, which I would never make it into one of his classes. (laughs) I'm not, you know, but let's say I was, like, I just, he, he has a very, like, traditional Western canonical way of writing. Um, Yeah, there was, um. Someone from our program, Mm -hmm. uh, I think, took a class with him. Mm -hmm. Not not a fellow student, sorry, an instructor, a professor. Yeah. And I can't remember who it was for the life of me, but I was taking a class with this professor and, like, he was absolutely gushing over Saunders. And, like, the last day of the ad drop period, I was just like, this isn't for me. I can't do this all semester. <laughs> I'm out. I'm out. And I took something else. But yeah, because very, yeah, perfectionist is a good word. I, I heard him on one interview on um, 
what is his name? Um, Ezra Klein's podcast. And he was talking about how when he writes, he will write a sentence and then spend like 10 to 20 minutes just making sure the sentence is right and correct and like the way it should be before going on to the next one. I was like, one, horrible. Two, must be nice to have like that time and energy. Luxury to do Um, that. So yeah. Plus like I had just read um, Craft in the Real World, which was a very interesting read, which really has recently turned me off to like white, straight, male-led workshopping and like the kind of stories that get read and dissected in workshops like it was very interesting the way that like because he goes into like even the three-act structure is very western and white and like in other countries they have different structures and it seems weird to americans but anyway i'm going off on a tangent but (laughs) (laughs) this is our podcast the writing workshop (laughs) spooky writing workshop Spooky writing Um, So yeah, basically, spooky writing and spooky reading mm-hmm. is on the horizon for everybody. Yeah. And if it's not, it should be. <laughs> so make your plan. Yeah. So let's talk about some writing that we could probably safely say was not all that spooky. <laughs> And that's Friday the 13th, part eight, Jason Takes Manhattan. If you ever think your screenplay is not that good, just remember. Just remember that this movie got made. And we're going to get into all of that right now. Mm -hmm. But first, let's take a listen to the trailer. make sure that we're all caught up on what the hell we're going to be talking about in this episode it'll be helpful to do uh, a look at the story so far in the friday the 13th franchise right yeah so everybody here's your refresher gather around the campfire gather around the campfire we're just perfect so friday the 13th in the original 1980 film We follow the killing spree of Pamela Voorhees, played by Betsy Palmer, who murders the counselors preparing to reopen Camp Crystal Lake where her son Jason drowned on June 13th, 1957. After all her friends are killed, final girl Alice Harding, played by Adrian King, fends off Mrs. Voorhees and decapitates her with a machete. Mm -hmm. 
I always think that's the most aggressive, like, you know, she takes a really long time to think about doing it. And rather than just doing like a hack somewhere or a stab, she just like, she just lops the bitch. (laughs) Hilarious. Just yeets her head right. Yes. Now, one would think, well, (laughs) it's all over. Yeah. But in part two, released one year later, Jason, played by Steve Daskowitz, revealed to be alive and fully grown, having been living in the woods around Crystal Lake, finds Alice and kills her to avenge his mother and returns to Crystal Lake to guard it from all future intruders. Five years later, a new group of campers arrive at the lake and set up a new camp, and Jason slaughters them all, save for our final girl, Ginny Field, played by Amy Steele, who finds a cabin in the woods with the severed head of Mrs. Voorhees set up in a shrine. Ginny fights back and slashes a machete through Jason's shoulder, leaving him for dead. Now, Miss Mel, what happens in part three? So, <clears throat> in part three, uh, which was released in 1982, um, so another year later, just about, mm-hmm. um, this one takes place the very next day from the slashing and the Ginny escaping um and jason in this one played by richard brooker um just removes the machete from his shoulder uh finds his way to higgins haven a vacation cabin where chris played by dana kimmel has arrived to spend the weekend with some friends jason hides out in the barn killing all who enter he takes a hockey mask from one of the victims and slaughters all but chris who seemingly kills him with an axe to the head before she is taken away in an ambulance now hysterical They all get taken away in ambulances, you know. (laughs) Love a good ambulance takeaway. Good ambulance takeaway. Um, In the next one, released in 1984, this is the final chapter. Um, The fourth one, it begins with Jason, this time played by Ted White, uh, being found in the barn and taken to the morgue. Once there, Jason kills the coroner and returns to Crystal Lake, where a group of friends are renting a house on the lake and find themselves terrorized by the masked killer leaving Jason to attack Trish, played by Kimberly Beck, and Tommy Jarvis, played by Corey Feldman. While distracted by Trish, young Jimmy, young Jimmy, Jesus Christ, young Tommy attacks (laughs) and finally kills Jason um, in a really bizarre sequence. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But that is the end of Jason. Yeah, that's the end of Jason. That's it. That's it's over. (laughs) um until what happens in the next installment well right so then in a new beginning from 1985 the fifth installment an older tommy jarvis now played by john shepherd is committed to a mental halfway house as a result of the trauma after um, the events of the previous film and paramedic roy burns played by dick wyand uses Jason, the Jason persona to carry out a series of murders at the halfway house as revenge for the death of his son whom one of the patients at the institution killed years prior. So the Jason visage is here, the mask Mm -hmm. and everything, but it's not actually Jason doing the killings. But in the sixth part, Jason Lives from 1986, Tommy, now played by Tom Matthews, is released from another institution and he digs up Jason's grave in order to burn the body, but inadvertently resurrects his nemesis when lightning strikes an iron fence post that had been rammed into Jason's body, which reanimates him. Now undead, 
Jason, played by C.J. Graham and Dan Bradley, immediately heads back to Crystal Lake to murder the new summer camp workers. Tommy follows and defeats Jason by chaining him to a boulder at the bottom of the lake, though it is revealed that Jason is still alive under the waves. And um, Ms. Mao, take us home and tell us what happened in the most recent installment. So in the seventh installment released in 1988, entitled The New Blood, a telekinetic and traumatized <laughs> Tina Shepard, played by Lar Park Lincoln, attempts to resurrect her father who drowned at Crystal Lake. Instead, she accidentally reawakens Jason, where he is tied to his boulder down below, this time played by Kane Hodder. Um, he once again embarks on a rampage, killing a group of rowdy teens, celebrating a birthday getaway. And after a battle against Tina and her psychic powers, Jason is once again imprisoned at the bottom of Crystal Lake. So there you have it, Chatterers. You're all caught up and we're now ready to talk about part eight. Now, New Blood, which Miss Mal just lovely told you about, absolutely bombed at the box office. Um, especially in comparison to its main competition, Nightmare on Elm Street 4, uh, the Dream, uh, what the fuck is 4? Dream Master? Dream Master, thank yeah. you. Um, which did quite well. <clears throat> but New Blood did make enough money to convince Frank Mancuso, uh, the main um, producer, essentially, um, at Paramount, in charge of Friday the 13th to green light a part eight. And he tapped Rob Hedden to both write and direct the new film, despite several story ideas and treatments that were available, um, including one from John Carl Beekler, the director of New Blood. Um, in his version of the screenplay, Tina was going to come back and face off against Jason again after um, she spent some time in an assailant asylum. That was rejected. There was also actually a screenplay written by Lar Park Lincoln, um, who played Tina. She and her husband wrote a screenplay where Tina was a psychologist for troubled girls and once again did battle with Jason. And there was also a screenplay put forward by Kevin Spiritus, who played Nick in part seven. His screenplay was probably the least likely that ever would have chosen because it involved all of New Blood being retconned into a dream sequence in which the character of Nick was the actual killer. <laughs> so these are all the part eights that could have been. Um, these are all rejected in favor of uh, Rob Hedden's vision. Hedden had basically kind of a done the corporate ladder thing. He worked his way up through Paramount. He had been writing for the Friday the 13th TV series, which has nothing to do with, with Jason. Um, and they were desperate for, um, to keep writers for that series. And so Hedden agreed to keep writing if he could also direct a couple episodes. So they allowed him to do that reluctantly. But then um, a lot of people at Paramount were impressed by the episodes that he directed, including Frank Mancuso. And so that's why he was like, hey, you, do you want to do part eight? And Hedden was like, sure, why not? Now his main idea, was that in order to keep the franchise fresh, Jason had to be removed from Crystal Lake. And basically like get out of the camp setting. We've seen that, we've done that. Um, you've got to take him somewhere else. Um, 
he had two main ideas on how to do this. The first was that the whole film would take place on a cruise ship and there would be a very claustrophobic vibe, uh, a la alien sort of thing going on. And his second idea was that the whole film would take place in New York. Uh, for budgetary reasons, obviously, we know that these two ideas were combined. Um, speaking of the budget, just to say it was around five, five and a half million, which was the most expensive budget for a Friday the 13th film. But um, we'll get into how it was weirdly spent for this movie. Um, so this is Hedden's directorial debut. Uh, he would go on to have a fairly decent career. He directed You May Not Kiss the Bride, The Condemned, Clock Stoppers, that's probably his biggest one, and The Colony. Anytime I'm anywhere, like, specifically, like, when I go into a public restroom and other people are there and I really don't want to deal with it, I wish I had the ability to do, like, Clock Stoppers so I could just, do Clock Stoppers! Yes! (laughs) Like, do that, or, like, I could skip a line or skip traffic. Mm -hmm. You know what? I always think about it, too. Like, um, if you're, like, at amusement parks Mm -hmm. waiting for... Like, like at Disney World or whatever, if you're waiting for like a really long line, I'm like, this is like a perfect clock stopper situation. Yeah, you just run to the front of the line. Yep. Um, so yeah, so that's Rob Hedden. Um, and that's his, that's kind of how he got on board with um, making part eight. Now, for those that have seen the film, which hopefully you have, if you're listening to this episode, we all know that the majority of this nearly two-hour film does not take place in New York. <laughs> Manhattan is rarely seen. And um, the reasoning behind this is that it was massively expensive to film in New York. Um, and so they had to, to use movie magic to get around that and cover some of that. There are some sequences that were filmed in Times Square, but most of the film set pieces, the docks, the alleyways was all filmed in Vancouver. Way, way, way cheaper. Um, so yeah, a couple more notes about um, what's going on in the film in terms of the production. We all know that Friday the 13th has an absolutely bonkers timeline, um, which uh, was alluded to a bit in our summary. Um, In terms of this film, we're told that uh, the students from the high school, which is Lakeview High, will be graduating on the 13th of this month, which we are taken to assume is June, um, which would be Jason's birthday. Somebody at some point mentions that Jason drowned 30 years ago, um, and Jason drowned in 1967. 63 or 57 right does he drown on 57 or yeah he drowns in 57 or he drowns in 57 right yeah because then in 58 they kill the two people right okay yeah so So that would make this like 87 but when we are in Times square you can see a big billboard for tim burton's batman which came out in 1989. So does that make it 1989? However, if you're going from the internal timeline for part seven, that's supposed to take place in 2001, which means this film can take place at like 2002 at the earliest. It's absolutely nuts. It's absolutely nuts. 
for what time, what year this movie is taking place in. It's proof that, uh, you know, we live in a simulation. It's proof that we live in a simulation. <laughs> Do you need proof? You look at Jason Takes Manhattan. <laughs> and of course, the other big one that people love to bring up with this film is not only um, the time, but the setting, the geography. <laughs> um, oh. How is it that our characters get from a lake to New York? Um, it, that always tripped me up because they switch from the yacht at the beginning or they're like the little first of all like the boat when it comes across the lake is hysterical to me hysterical <laughs> I don't know why and then you cut to a bigger boat yeah, and you're like yeah. how did Jason get on this boat <laughs> how did Jason get on this boat right there's like there's a mention that like oh he came down the river so it's like okay so is Crystal Lake connected to a river that feeds into the ocean what i also want the footage of jason like driving his boat down the river to go do murder <laughs> could you imagine <laughs> um so yeah just some things to keep in mind about this absolutely bonkers film um but should we should we now talk about the, the film itself should we walk through the story uh, yeah okay do that. um so yeah we open on Crystal Lake at the beginning of the film. Um, and we're treated to, sorry, I have to look up their names real quick. Oh, Jim and Susie, um, a young couple on a yacht. <laughs> on a lake. On a lake. So on what? a small lake too. Like this isn't a great Yeah. Lake. <laughs> yeah, this isn't like Lake Superior or something like mish um yeah there, there's this couple on the yacht and they're about to get intimate and it's nighttime and for you know dumb 80s reasons jim decides to scare Susie with the story of jason i think there this is where it's mentioned that he drowned 30 years ago um and kind of like gives a very brief recap of the character's history over the last seven films. And then he pulls this prank on her. He's got a hockey mask. Um, you know, he scares her with a fake knife and that just gets her in the mood. Um, but what the two of them don't realize is that the anchor from their yacht has caught on an underground um, electrical wire some sort of utility something yeah something or other i don't fully understand whatever but this wire is also um happens to to be touching the i guess comatose body of zombie jason who is of course as we know at the bottom of the lake under the dock where tina left him at the end of the last film and the shock from the wire once again reanimates our good old boy who climbs aboard the yacht and quickly dispatches with Jim and Susie. And then I guess just chills there as the yacht just floats away. No, that's what's so confusing is because the yacht floats away and basically almost the next scene is the new bigger yacht. It's the new bigger one. Yeah, so tell us about that. Okay. <laughs> so we cut to... You know, and you're forgiven for being confused about where the hell we cut to because I actually don't even think they tell us. It's I don't, that's why I'm like, are they still on the lake? 
Like, are they still? Yeah, I was like, oh, the lake got big. Yeah, I'm like, I don't know where they are. It's somewhere on a coast because they take this boat in the ocean. Right. So this boat, which this boat, by the way, is the SS Lazarus. (laughs) I can't. Just so we have that, know that, that that's, that's happening. Um, but yeah, so we meet uh, Rennie, played by Jensen Daggett. Mm-hmm. Um, and then is it, it's Colleen, right? That's. Yeah, the teacher. Yeah, the teacher. I just knew her as the teacher lady. Like yeah, nice Colleen teacher lady. Van Dusen. Yeah, Colleen Van Dusen, played by Barbara Bingham, um, who you might think is her mom at first. It's not. Um <laughs> It's her teacher friend who, this is actually like a ridiculous, funny scene, I feel. in like Oh my God, really, I can't. Really unintentional way. So they're sitting in the car, they're at a dock and um, Remy's graduating. So um, I guess she's Colleen's favorite student or whatever. Colleen's her favorite teacher. Colleen gives her a gift um, as a graduation gift and she, Remy opens it and it's a little like fountain pen that Colleen says supposedly Stephen King used when he was in high school. <laughs> um, and Rennie's like, oh, cool, thanks. I can't really tell if Rennie enjoys being a writer or not. Right? I was, really... I was trying to be like, okay, like, so it's Colleen, the English teacher, and like, you know, whatever. Rennie's a really good writer. They, like, she says something about, oh, you're talented, but then yeah. like, and there's it's an never extended... really brought up again. <laughs> no, it's brought up once after this when she like makes a joke to her dog about trying to write later. Yeah, oh yeah. Happen. But there's an extended version of this scene that isn't in the final cut where they talk about like bad book ideas. So it's like more expanded um, upon that she wants okay. to be like a fiction writer. Okay. Um, but it just comes across as her being like, oh, thanks for the shitty gift. <laughs> like, I don't it really do this. Humble. I don't know. But anyway. Um, she gives her a, um, you know, the, the gift and is also a chaperone, I guess, on this like non booze booze cruise for the seniors that they're doing. Yeah. It's like a, it's like a, like, it's almost like a senior dinner dance class yeah. trip. I, I don't know. There's only it's, like it's, eight of them on the boat, though. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, I think it, this is before you've all graduated, but like, I don't, I don't know. Or you yeah. did graduate earlier that day. Yeah, it's, it's, like, it's like some sort of like senior trip situation. And basically it's chaperoned by the English teacher, Colleen, Mrs. Ben Dusen, and um, the biology teacher, um mr mcculloch who also so is he the biology teacher he's a biology teacher. i couldn't like i've never been able to figure because he gives off very like principal air he does but then there's that scene where she yeah yeah because then but then yeah he keeps asking for people to turn in homework and i was like why is the principal he must be a teacher yeah 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 he gives off major principal vibes but he is the biology teacher he is also rennie's uncle which is weird right um and her legal guardian. And her legal guardian. Um, and he's, like, not super happy that Rennie is here, which is weird, because, like, is she not also graduating? Was she not invited? Like, I don't understand the, oh the mythology God, have, yeah. of this senior trip. <laughs> um, he's, yeah, like, kind of like, pissed off that she's here for some reason. Yeah, there's, like, this whole thing where it's just, he's just like, this isn't a good idea. And, like, Colleen Van Dusen is, like, no, it's good for her because there's like, there's, we get this sense, right? That like 
there's this trauma that Rennie's dealing with, which <laughs> like we find out later what it is. And it's like, okay, but like, but why, why is there this sense of like, she's going to do something? You know right. what I mean? Yeah. No, they, yeah. Like you, is she going to stab people with the steel? Yeah. Like, like he keeps acting like she's going to like freak out and like murder six people. And I'm like, well, no, like, <laughs> no. <laughs> Yeah, so it's a weird exchange all around. Another very strange exchange we have is up in the um, the bridge. What do you call it in a boat? Yeah, the bridge. The bridge. Um, we meet Sean uh, <laughs> Robertson, played by Scott Reeves, um, who is, for some reason, like going to also be the captain of this voyage <laughs> for a second. <laughs> he's also a graduating senior yep um and his dad is a navy admiral i guess yeah um and his dad is like the one who's serving as captain of the boat but like he does this whole thing where he tries to be like all right you're the i'm relinquishing command to yeah to you to captain captain, captain sean and sean like fucks it up because he doesn't blow <laughs> the whistle <laughs> He immediately like gets yelled at yeah he's like he, yeah he, he's the dad is like um do the international maritime, maritime. <laughs> so it goes poorly um so i guess there's this subplot that's never really explored where sean's dad wants him to be a boat captain and sean right. maybe doesn't but we don't know what sean wants there is a cut subplot where it is revealed that sean was an olympic diver Oh my god! <laughs> that did not make the final cut, so I don't know if that has something to do with his true hopes and dreams, but we don't. Wow. Know. Well, I can see why that was cut because, like, diving never comes up. No, the only time I think it, it would have come uh, up is when he jumps into the water. Yeah, I was going to um, say. I guess when he goes to save her. Yeah, but anyway, so all this is happening. We're meeting some people. There's some other guys on the the boat as well who are like kind of like jockey types. Um, yeah. There's the Julius and Julius and his buddies who we later see him just punching. Um, pummeling the shit. Yeah. Um, we meet, I forget his name, but the TV camera guy. Um, Wayne. Um, Wayne. Wayne. Uh, yeah. So Wayne, clearly the film student carrying around a giant camera. Um, and then also on board is like the prom queen. Um mm-hmm. Uh, a woman named Ava who's like a straight A student um and then there's like the rocker alt chick JJ who like brought her guitar and amp for some reason on the boat she and Wayne are like filming music videos I guess while they're here so we meet this like cohort of seniors who are going on this um class trip Tamara is the name of the uh the prom yeah, queen she's I the prom queen yeah um also a, a dog is on board toby rennie brings her dog toby yeah i was like why is she allowed to bring her dog yeah he's not like a designated like like service animal or anything he's yeah. just her dog but but so i guess if you're allowed to bring your electric guitar then and your amp um <laughs> so all this happens we set off despite sean fucking up the uh undocking or whatever <laughs> um and um jason's also on board um and pretty much immediately jj gets murked um 
she and um yeah while she's rocking out yeah she goes downstairs to like the like the industrial part of the ship i don't know what you call it but kind of like near the boiler room and she's like oh yeah this would be a sick place for a music video and starts like jamming out to music and jason like cuts her head off with her own guitar or something yeah and we get that like blood on the camera shot yeah so that's good um and from there you know things just escalate so so what happens after this yeah so you know we get this like tension going on with rennie who like yeah her like strange trauma that's like water related which we will find out later what that is and everyone's all sensitive around her and she and sean there's like hints of a romantic chemistry he gives her this really ugly statue of liberty necklace he's obsessed with the statue of liberty (laughs) (laughs) like was your Uh, grandfather like like i don't yeah and everyone's kind of doing their own thing on this rather large cruise ship um, as it makes its way to Manhattan, which is like the purpose of the trip. And Jason is going around. Yeah, he's murked JJ um, in the bowels of the ship, which like the creepy deckhand hears. Oh, yes. I forgot through about the tube the and then like doesn't do anything about it. The uh, crazy Ralph of the boat. Yeah. Um, and then so next, I believe, is um, Jason makes his way to the sauna where he picks up one of the hot rocks and jams it into the stomach of one of like the broy jock guys. I don't think this character even has a name. He's uh, the guy who was just getting punched, right? Yeah, he's the guy that Julius, the boxer, beats in like the sparring match that um, Tamara and Eva spy on because like this place of course has a boxing ring yeah no there's just these guys and like it's a ridiculous scene because he literally just keeps like rock'em sock'em roboting this guy yeah the, the other guy doesn't get a single hit in it's but anyway <laughs> he ends up hot rocked um in the sauna and then I think it's a it's after that kill that um Rennie has a vision of young Jason drowning in the lake yeah that her dog Toby also kind of sees or maybe senses because like this vision hallucination thing happens when Jason is like right outside Rennie's cabin um and Toby gets spooked and runs away. So Rennie goes looking for him. She stumbles across Tamara and Eva about to do cocaine. Um, or maybe Tamara does some cocaine. And she does think- it, but she does it off camera because I compiled oh. a list of like the cut scenes because this film was over two hours originally before they cut it down. It's a um, long movie. But in the original cut, there was a shot of them actually doing cocaine and mm. like the sensors, one of them. To Does Eva do it too? I don't know. Oh, At but least can't. one person snorts it though, like on camera. On this yeah, yeah, like, yeah. No, you can't do that. So yeah, she stumbles across them and she's like, have you seen my dog? And they're like, no, do you want to hit? Um, and Rennie's like, no. Because Rennie's like the, the weird outcast, I guess. And everyone makes fun of her. But it's like, why? She's gorgeous. Like, yeah. is it because she's scared of the water what a yeah. dumb whatever um 
And so they talk about how weird Rennie is. And then McCullough finds them because he's also, I guess, looking for Rennie. Um, but he stumbles across them. And then he's like, turn in your homework, Miss whatever Tamara's last name is. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, I'm sorry, are they graduated he, already? Like, why is there still homework that needs to be turned in? He's like, he refers to like a project that's due on like Monday or something. Yeah, but he like wants her to turn it in now, or and he's gonna like make her stay on the ship because he figures out that they're doing drugs and like she's not gonna get to see New York. And so um I think this is when she takes him back to her, or he then she goes back to her cabin, Tamara, yeah. right? Yeah. And the McCullough seduction thing where she, yeah, which is like, it's the least sexy come on. And it's like, was it magic marker? Was it crayon? I don't. (laughs) Yeah. Like, where does she have that? Whatever. I don't know. She also has champagne. Yeah. But um, it, it, it vaguely works. Like she gets him on the bed and I think they make out for a little bit. And then he's like, I'm your teacher. I mean, like he clearly wants to fuck her. Yeah. Um, but but he does leave. And then Tamara gets in the shower. And oh, she... before he leaves, Wayne. Oh, uh, that's right. How could I forget? Yeah. That was the whole yeah. point of this, I think. Yeah, yeah, that was the whole point of this. My apologies. Um, Wayne shows up. Um, and it turns out it's been this kind of ruse set up between Tamara and Wayne to blackmail McCullough into giving Tamara a passing grade. Um, cause Wayne's like, I have, I filmed you and he gives the tape to Tamara. And so McCullough's like, and, um, I, I mean, like he like vaguely threatens her, but like, what is he going to do? Yeah. Um, like they have little video evidence. Yeah. So then he leaves and he like, I don't know, he says something snarky to Wayne as well. Yeah, and then Tamara is alone. She rejects Wayne. It's <laughs> <And laughs> something like, I've been hot for you for since sophomore year or something year or like that. And she's just like, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Closes the door. Um, yeah, and Oh, you know what we forgot? Mm. Before this, Tamara hip checks Rennie on top of the boat. Oh my God, yeah. And throws her. her. And attempts to murder her. Yeah, her off the boat. And then it's like, it was an accident. (laughs) Yeah, it was an accident. And and nobody responds to this the way that they should. No. Like, uh, Colleen, the teacher, throws in the life vest. And then Sean jumps in to get Rennie the like two feet to the life vest. And they pull her in. But then like after that, Colleen's just like, she's fine. Everybody go back to what you were doing. And everybody does. Yeah, like, no. Someone just fell overboard. Well, you know what's funny is that was another scene that was extended in the longer version where they explain there a little bit of her being, you know, like Rennie's like, I could never learn how to swim because of, the, the summers I spent at my uncle's cabin by Crystal Lake and knowing mm. what went on there, like she takes it very personally what happened She's <laughs> at like, Crystal I'm Lake not. and it's why she can't swim. We don't really find that out until later and we find out much less than that. <laughs> um, 
but yeah. yeah but then there's like there's and there's no repercussions when Tamara clearly did it on purpose like yeah so anyway so that all happens before the stuff with McCullough anyway all of this to say that when Tamara gets out of her shower she hears her door to her stateroom quietly being opened and peeks out and sees that it's Jason and it's yes. like what the fuck and so she like quietly tries to hide in the bathroom, but he knows that she's in there and he like stabs her through the door and throws her into the mirror and picks up a big glass shard and then he kills her. And so now Tamara is down for the count. Um, and then it's at this point that he kills the crew? Yes. Okay, yeah. yeah. So tell us about that. So from here, he just decides, I guess, to go to the bridge. Um, and he kills the crew. He kills the captain and the first mate. Um, we find out later that he kills the creepy deckhand as well. Um, who, right. The three of them appear to be the only crew. <laughs> <laughs> just these motherfuckers. <laughs> um, so you know that happens nobody's really noticed anything yet eventually um an alarm goes off or something and like yeah because sean and his like weird silent friends don't they go to the bridge and find they find the bodies um so sean does the alarm yeah so sean sets off the alarm they all gather in the like disco area um Somebody stumbles on Tamara, somebody who like doesn't fully, it might be Ava. Um, and, it's Ava because she goes yeah. to get Tamara to be like, there's an emergency. And that's when she finds her. Yeah. And she finds her and then she gets dispatched at some point quickly thereafter um, in the disco room. Um, where she I was, love that sequence. Yeah. Where she is strangled and then like grunt yeah. spikes into the ground um after she just like spins around on the disco floor yeah, for like it's like almost minutes. a dance sequence like why are there 10 doors into the disco room you know for all the disco entrances <laughs> it's like um prom night yeah um it's like prom. so anyway they everyone gathers um elsewhere i think they call it the restaurant there's a restaurant on the boat there's yeah there's the restaurant um, but the like broy jock guys decide that they're gonna go out and find Jason and, and kill him and like form a little mob. And I love that thing where they like get the weapons and they're like, "Hey Julius, what are you gonna take?" And he goes, "Nothing, but this gun." Yeah, because <laughs> at first you think he's gonna like, yeah. yeah. But then he he gets the gun. Um, and, but later he does end up trying to have a box. I, I know, right? <laughs> um, and McCullough, you know, he's yelling at them. He's like, "I'm in charge here," and they're like, "Fuck off!" Um, school's out. This like, oh, that's the other good one. <laughs> School is out. And Julius says to him, "So they split up. So the the men, the the jock men, go off, and then it's Sean, Rennie, Colleen, and McCullough are a unit, right? And um there's they like go off i think that the, mccullough wants to stay on the boat i think and call for help because he grabs the flare and sean right. wants to get off the boat 
somewhere in all of this, Colleen has run off and prepared the lifeboat. <laughs> I don't, <laughs> oh, I don't yeah, know when like, she disappears. She's like, I lowered the lifeboat. Yeah, like, but she what? comes back and says that, and they're like, great, let's go. Um, because at some point during all this, the boat also starts taking on water. It's all really confusing. Yeah, because there's the, when he kills the silent friend, Miles. Yeah. And he throws him into the transmitter. There's yeah. like the fire and then like it causes like the like leakage or whatever. Yeah. And then the leak turns into like a big rush of water. The boat's taking off water. They have to get off the boat, um, which they do like with minimal really issue. Jason like watches them get on the lifeboat from the deck and then vanishes um, and they get on the boat and. Right. And Wayne is killed. Wayne is killed. Um Julius pops out of the water. He's the only like one of the bros to make it. They pull him onto the lifeboat and Toby is on there too, somehow. Toby. Right. Um, <laughs> and for an undisclosed number of days or hours, we don't know, they row their way to New York from wherever they were. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, <laughs> McCullough, like, there's nothing you can do that he would be like, pleased with because like they dock the boat and he's like what a shitty place to dock the boat <laughs> like as if there's a choice i know right um he's like well well done mr robertson and he's like he, you know this guy who just literally rode them to, to yeah who just navigated your way to, to safety yeah <clears throat> they get there and decide that they need to like a get somewhere else because they're kind of in a seedy area and also like call for help figure out you know what right. what the next steps are as they're leaving jason emerges i guess he has swam to shore walked across the seafloor this movie just completely ignores the mythology that jason is terrified of water yeah so jason pops up He's and women every which way and starts to follow them down the street um but before jason can get to them um, a bit of uh, New York hospitality finds them first. <laughs> if you would like to, to tell us what happens there. Yeah, so our heroes end up getting confronted by some hoodlums. Yeah. Um, and they've got knives, guns? I don't, I honestly don't remember. I, mm, <laughs> I don't know. They're... One has a gun. One definitely has a gun. One has a gun. Okay. So and they have knives. And so whatever. They're like mugged. They take like Sean and Julius and McCullough's wallets. And then the like head hoodlum is <laughs> all into Rennie. So she's straight up kidnapped. Yeah. Um, and they run off with her. Again, no one reacts as they should. <laughs> no one reacts as they should. At all. In fact, their solution is like, oh, ready to be kidnapped. Let's all split up <laughs> and search these alleyways and this dock area because they don't ever really leave this like seedy downtown place. Um, and so look for her individually. That's the solution. From these men who have knives and guns and have just yeah, and knives and guns them. Great idea. So they do. And during the search, um, the hoodlums take Rennie back to their, like, lair. And they're going to, like, they're going to rape her. And um, they, actually, the one they 
inject her with a drug so that she's, you know, out of it or whatever, like a roofie type situation. Um, and she is interestingly ends up being saved by Jason, who he does appears- not, he does not like rapists. <laughs> yeah, Jason, I guess, for all the murder and the mayhem he loves, he doesn't love rape. Um, which I don't know, yeah. I mean, Jason doesn't like sexy time, right? Yeah, because that's the reason he died. So sensual yeah. or otherwise, he's not having it. Yeah. Um, so he kills the hoodlums, and in that chaos Rennie is able to escape even though she was drugged whatever yeah she's there's like no consequences of the drugging no there's none at all um and she runs off Jason pursues her but ends up coming across Julius and there's a bit of a chase there and they end up on top of a building where Julius because he's a boxer is like I'm just gonna punch the shit out of this guy and he starts going for it and it's actually like a really long sequence like bordering on comedic like yeah. the number how much he punches jason basically you know to the point where he exhausts himself and that jason just with one swift punch lops his head off yeah, punches <laughs> it's like that little british kid who was talking about santa he's like i punch him i punch his beard off punch punch his beard off that's Jason. That's Just, Jason, if Julius had a beard. So Julius is dispatched. Um, and then, meanwhile, Rennie reunites with, um, like, everybody, I guess. Sean and McCullough and Colleen Van Dusen. I just have to say her full name. Van Dusen. <laughs> Colleen Van Dusen. And they come across a cop. And they're like, oh, my God, you can save us. And the cop's like, yeah, whatever. Um, but he is killed by Jason. And so while they're doing that, uh, Rennie gets in the driver's seat of the cop car and she like drives away. She runs over Jason, but then loses control of the car and crashes it. And Rennie, Sean, and McCullough are able to get out, but Colleen Van Dusen is not. And the car explodes and she dies. And... This, for whatever reason, triggers a memory for Rennie of when she was a young girl spending summers at her uncle Charles McCullough's house on Crystal Lake. I guess she was having trouble learning how to swim. And we see that he takes her out on the lake. He tells her the story of Jason, emphasizing that he's still at the bottom of the lake and then throws his niece his child niece into the lake as a tough love thing to make her learn how to swim, which she can't. And she goes under and sees Jason. Maybe. Maybe. Um, She thinks she does. Yeah. And so this is the trauma and this is the reason she is afraid of the water, which is why McCullough didn't want her to come on the trip. Because he might throw her off the boat again. I don't think he might control himself. (laughs) Once she's on the boat, isn't that like getting over the hurdle? Like, what are you worried was going to happen after that point? I don't know. Whatever. So she has this memory and she blames. She's like, you're the reason. Even though we learn at one point that her parents died in a car crash. It, and you so, think like the car crash she just got in, that's the memory it might jog. Right? But that's not 
know what happened. The car crash triggers the water thing. And I'm like, what? The car is on fire, but it's like fully engulfed in flames. Yet it is the lake she is thinking of. She's thinking about the water. Okay. Yeah, she like she like looks into the the puddle that's on fire. Yeah, the puddle. That's what and sees them rowing a boat as a kid. But it's so funny because it's like it's on fire. Yeah, it's on fire. It's like a puddle of gasoline. And and you had a trauma related to a car crash, but you're thinking about this other trauma related to water. What? So yeah, so she gets mad at McCullough. And like has this whole thing, or she runs off and Sean goes after her and he's like, don't follow us because you're terrible, McCullough. Um, And there's like this whole heart to heart with Renny and Sean. And she's like, people I love keep dying and I don't know what to do. And he's like, well, I'm here, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Jason, having been hit by the car is obviously not dead. That's not going to bring him down. So he gets up and he starts chasing McCullough, uh, chases him into a warehouse, somehow ends up on the second floor of that warehouse before McCullough and throws him out the window. Um, and I believe that kills him, right? Uh, he comes down and gets him and puts him in like a, a sewage pipe. Oh yeah, he drowns him in the sludge or whatever yeah. it is. The like very comedically green sewer sludge yeah 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 that's right um so now we're down to just Rennie and Sean who Jason pursues um kind of into New York proper now there's a chase on the subway the graffiti covered subway um where uh Sean pulls the emergency brake which um stops Jason for a little bit and allows them to like run into the subway tunnels um they come up into times square and there's a bit of a chase there um jason kicks the boom box shows his face to the punks and they run away it's all very freddy krueger-ish kind of um and then somehow we end up back in the oh no well they go through the diner yeah and there's a confrontation in there. And then we end up back in underground. Now we're in the sewers. And Jason is pursuing them. They come across a sewage worker who gets killed. And they make their way to like an exit. Um, because the sewage worker tells them that the, the sewers flood at midnight every night with toxic waste. Which, yeah, okay. And still so add an they're at an exit and like the final confrontation goes down where they're climbing on a ladder and Jason's pursuing him. But basically they like um, get him knocked into the toxic sludge because the, the rushing water, the rushing sewage like reminds him of when he drowned, I guess. Yeah. Cause suddenly he's afraid of water now. Didn't you just like walk across the ocean floor to get to Manhattan? Yeah. Like, are you worried about water? That's my thing here is like, okay, I understand wanting to get them on a isolated thing. Why not like a train or yeah. a plane? Why did it have to be a boat? I don't know. I, yeah. Anyway. Um, so the, uh, Jason is like swept away by the toxic waste. Um, <clears throat> but like, 
as the waste dissipates, like we see the child Jason left behind, the one that Rennie has been having visions of, the boy that supposedly drowned in the lake all those years ago. And it's like, I don't know, no one has ever really known what to make of that. <laughs> um, that's the image we're left with. And then Rennie and Sean climb out of the sewer and Toby is there still and happens to find them right there. And then they're like, oh my God, we made it. And now we're in New York. And that is the close of the film. Yeah. And and Sean's like, hey, they got a 22-story statue we could go see. Right. Again, he's obsessed with the Statue of Liberty. Obsessed. That's the whole reason he was on this trip. So that's the film, uh, the plot of the film. Um, Couple more things to talk about the production and then we can get into the cast and maybe some analysis. Um, The score was composed by Fred Mullen who composed the score for part seven. Uh, Longtime series composer, Henry Manfredini helped with the composition but he's not credited. it's just Mullins. This was the first film of the series where the theme does not play over the opening credits. Uh, instead, what we get is a song called The Darkest Side of the Night by the band Metropolis. It was written specifically for this film um, and it was not available until uh, 2000 when it was released as part of the album, The Power of the Night. And as this song plays, we get like a lot of shots of New York basically tracking what's going to happen later in the film. Like they show the docks, they show the diner, the subway. Um, it's a really weird opening to this film. Is. Especially because yeah. you see that and then we immediately leave New York and go to Crystal Lake. Yeah. And it's like, well, if that's where we're going to open the film, why not just do the traditional opening with the traditional theme? But they don't. It's odd. Um, other notes in terms of the music, uh, JJ's song that she rocks out to in the bowels of the ship for her death scene is called Broken Dreams. Um, it was also written for the film by Mullen and Stan Meisner. Um, Terry Crawford is the artist who performed the vocals. This became a massive hit when the movie came out in 1989. Um, and so, and has kind of been a cult hit for fans of the film ever since. There was like a long time call for um, Paramount and the filmmakers to release a full version of the song, but Meisner always said there was no full version of the song, so they couldn't do it. Um, But actually this year, earlier this year, they finally released the full soundtrack for Jason Takes Manhattan. And um, there is a complete version of Broken Dreams on it. So if you liked that song. (laughs) It's that you can get it now. You can get it now. Um, so, so that's the music and that's the score. Any, any thoughts or feelings about the score of this film? No, just that they changed the Chi Chi Ha Ha's. Yeah, which is not great. Yeah. Um, and then in terms of special effects, Martin Becker returns to do special effects in this film. Jamie Brown did the makeup for Jason. This was the last movie that they ever worked on though. Um, no other credits after this. Um, I personally don't love the makeup for Jason in this movie. Yeah, it looks very, like, um, comedic. Yeah. It's Crypt keeper-y, like. Yeah. It's too gooey. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
But I do think in terms of other special effects, there's some cool stuff that they do with like lighting and shadows. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the mirror transition um, where it's like the boy, Jason, that's choking her. Mm-hmm. And then when he pulls back, you see the shadow of the adult Jason. Yeah. I thought was cool. And I like the, when the sewer worker gets killed, we see it in shadow and there's that spray of blood. I thought that was a cool shot. Um, but other than that, like, I think what you notice in this film is that there's some really elaborate deaths, but like almost none of them are actually shown on screen. Yeah. Like we cut away at the, at the kill moment for so many of them. Like Julius is one of the exceptions, the sauna death. I think that's it though. Yeah, I think we see um, in the beginning, the two of them, like we get a weird extreme close-up of them getting stabbed, but it's very quick and kind of jerky. Yeah, it's super quick. But, but like Tamara, we cut away from. JJ, we cut away from. Wayne, we cut away from. There's a lot that like you don't actually see the moment. It's real interesting. Yeah. All right, so... Shall we do our roll call? Sure. Okay. So in billing order, the film stars Jensen Daggett as Rennie Wickham. Um, Daggett beat out both Elizabeth Berkeley and Pamela Anderson for this role. Um, I think she does great. I do want to live in an alternate universe where Pamela Anderson is the star of this movie. (laughs) Right. Um, we kind of touched on the hallucinations for this character or whatever they are. Is she seeing the real young Jason? Is it because of what happened to her at the lake? What do you think? The thing is, is like up until that last moment where kid Jason is left behind, like you can just chalk it up to like, yeah, she has trauma and this is how it's presenting. But then again, who knows? Maybe she's imagining that. Like, we don't know if Sean saw kid jason yeah but that's also i guess not clear yeah so i get i it's like okay i guess it's from her trauma because she saw him as a kid in the lake or at least she thought she did yeah or thought that she did because her uncle scared her it's such an odd story development and because it's like it feels like they're trying to be vaguely supernatural with it and it makes me think of the previous film with the whole psychic angle, Mm -hmm. especially because the Rennie, Colleen, McCullough dynamic is almost exactly the same as what they did in part seven with Tina, Amanda, and Dr. Cruz. Mm -hmm. Like a young girl with some kind of trauma, a female figure that's taking care of her and like a male figure with weird ulterior motives. Yeah. I'm like, you just recycled this. yeah, we kind of, okay, so we kind of, we figured out what the trauma is, but it's still kind of weird. Um, this actress, um, this was an early role for her, but she did go on to star in uh, Melrose Place, Home Improvement, Project Alf. Uh, she's the love interest in Major League, Back to the Minor. She's in Bristol County Junior. She's the lead in The Single Guy. So she had a decent career after this. <clears throat> Next up is Scott Reeves as Sean Robertson. Uh, Reeves was actually the second choice. He replaced a different actor in this role, an actor named Lee Coleman, who had been on set and had been filming 
Um, you can see some of that in the Crystal Lake Memories documentary. Um, but the producers decided that he didn't have enough sexual chemistry with Jensen Daggett. And so they replaced him with Scott Reeves. Uh, Reeves has also had a fairly successful career. He was on like two seasons of Nashville, apparently. I've never <laughs> seen that. Um, as well as he was a soap actor for a long time in the 90s on Young and the Restless and General Hospital. Um, <clears throat> thumbs up, thumbs down for these yeah. lead performances. Yeah, we're fine. Yeah. We also have Barbara Bigham as Colleen Van Dusen, the over-involved teacher. Uh, we talked a bit about her car death. We've kind of gone into everything about her. She's she's a weird character. I kept forgetting that she was in the movie until she showed up. You know what right. I mean? Right. And you keep forgetting like what her relationship is to Rennie because you assume mom like every time she comes in, but she's a yeah. teacher. <laughs> Right. And then didn't you also get the sense that like she and McCullough might've had a sexual relationship? Yeah. <laughs> like mom and dad. Yeah. And of course, McCullough uh, played by Peter Mark Richmond. He gets the and and the as. Um, he's the uncle, he's the teacher. Um, we've kind of figured him out as well. Uh, this actor was a big character actor in the 70s and 80s. Um, he's in the Twilight Zone. He was on Crime Busters, Dynasty, Alfred Hitchcock Presents. He had a very long life, a very long career. He actually just passed away in January. Oh. Yeah. And then, so those are our leads. <clears throat> then we have also starring Martin Cummins as Wayne, the camera guy. He would go on to be in Omen 4, uh, the Poltergeist TV series. And he apparently also is currently on Riverdale. For him. I don't watch it. Yeah, I don't know. Um, Gordon Curry played Miles Wolf, who is the silent friend of Sean's. I don't think he has a line. If he does, I don't remember. Um, yeah. He was the lead, though, in Puppet Master 4 and 5, and he also played Nikolai Carpathia, the Antichrist, in the Left Behind movies. That's hysterical. Yeah. So he had, like, actually kind of a major career as well. Um, next up is Alex Diakin as the deckhand who is this film's harbinger of doom the crazy Ralph stand-in um, this actor who's on the X-Files in a number of episodes he's in the Police Academy TV series he's in McCabe and Mrs. Miller also a fairly decent career um, V.C. Dupree as Julius the Boxer we've gone over his great line is out McCullough <laughs> He talks about in the Crystal Lake Memories documentary that apparently the plan for the boxing confrontation was supposed to happen in Madison Square Garden. Okay. Yeah, but that was too expensive, so they couldn't do that. Um, he also mentions that he has kept his prosthetic head for his character. He still has it, so it's kind of funny. Um, also decent career as well. He's in the Freddy's Nightmares TV show. He was on Knight Rider. He was in South Central um thumbs up and thumbs down for these supporting characters yeah except i mean i don't know silent friend had no lines but yeah i don't know that i could like accurately judge his performance but i think everybody else does a fine job yeah then we get into like the third tier of our characters saffron henderson is jj the rocker um she did not actually play the guitar in that scene but i think she does a good job of like it looks like she is yeah yeah. 
Um, she, this actress has done a lot of anime work. Um, she's also in The Fly too. Ew. You know how I feel about The Fly. Then we have probably the, the biggest actually performer to come out of this film, which is Kelly Hu, um, who played Ava Watanabe, the science um, person. She has had uh, a really strong career. She was in The Scorpion King. She plays like the Lady Wolverine in X2. Oh. Um, yeah, she's in Arrow as a major character. She's on The Vampire Diary. She's on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. She was on Sunset Beach. Okay. She's had like pretty strong career. Um, and this was her first film. We've got Charlene Martin as Tamara Mason, the prom queen bitch. Um, I think the question here, is she better or worse than Melissa, the bitch from the last movie? I feel like she doesn't, I mean, <laughs> um, I'm going to say I liked Melissa better. You like Melissa better than Tamara? Yeah. Yeah. I just felt like this was a weird, like, like the, the, the attempted murder with no context. <laughs> yeah that's like you know aggressive trying to seduce the teacher to like blackmail him it just felt like she was like too too bitchy to be believable yeah i feel that i feel that um she this character was supposed to have a much larger death scene apparently like they were going to show the mirror shards like sticking out of her corpse um we don't see that in the finished version and just another interesting note for um, Charlene Martin. She, there's an interesting interview with her where she talks about um, being uncomfortable to do the, um, the shower scene, which is a weird scene because she is naked, but because of the shower curtain, we don't see all that much. Mm -hmm. um, and to make her comfortable, Rob Hedden actually stripped off all of his clothes as like a solidarity thing and like walked on set and I guess like in some of the dailies from that that day he's like in there and the producers were like why is the director naked on set <laughs> <laughs> um and she said that that made her feel like more comfortable and that like whatever she wasn't being exploited or what have you which mm -hmm. I just thought was an interesting story yeah um and then we've got Warren Munson who plays the admiral Sean's father um Another big character actor, he's in Star Trek The Next Generation, Port Charles, LA Law. He's in the fourth Amityville horror movie, The Evil Escapes, in a somewhat large role. And then of course, um, Kane Hodder, who is playing Jason. Um, he is the first repeat Jason in the franchise. And of course, as we mentioned in the last Friday the 13th special, he's really the actor that comes to embody the character for the next 10 years. The person that most people associate with Jason as a performer. In terms of the character, this is really the first time Jason seems to be able to supersede the bounds of space and time. <laughs> you know, particularly as we have touched on when he gets from the boat to Manhattan, despite his fear of water, when he's somehow on the second floor of that building blah 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 like Jason is like there's a lot of that in this movie like even like someone who is it's climbing the ladder and they're like looking down at Jason and then they look up and Jason's at the top of the ladder I think it's um is it when they're trying to get in the lifeboat maybe 
but like there's a lot of that he's just like appears places yeah now in this film and which he wasn't able to do before i find hotter's performance in this film to be a little bit stilted i feel like he makes a lot of slow moving acting choices that make me think of michael myers mm-hmm. um i don't know that that works for me necessarily because jason's never really been stilted in previous you know he's not like stiff the way michael is stiff well and thinking about it having just watched you know part two like how much more movement and body was in that version and how like reactive he was to his environment and yeah that sort of thing and i don't know maybe it's supposed to be because he's like dead now you know he's reanimated but like it just it gives off a weird vibe to me in this film yeah. I also think the self-aware moments are really weird um, and kind of remind me of Freddy. Yeah, when he takes his mask off to like scare the... Uh... When he takes his mask off or when um, when he gets to New York and he sees the, the hockey billboard and he tilts yeah. his head. Like, it's like, okay, so Jason's aware that he's wearing a hockey mask and that he looks scary, but then why wear the mask? You know what I mean? yeah. So I thought, I thought this was really interesting um, performance of Jason. Um, and then just real quick, uh, Amber Pollock plays the young Rennie. Her only other acting credit is as a drowning child in Danger Bay. So I guess she was typecast. Yeah. <laughs> Timothy Burr-Markovich, the son of one of the producers, plays the young Jason. The thing with this character is I don't know why they didn't have consistent makeup yeah. in this Sometimes he has hair, sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes his eyes weird, sometimes it's not. And at know. the end, he looks like just a normal boy. Yeah. He's, when, when he, you know, it's the, the sort of Jason's body gets washed away. I thought it was a different kid every time we saw him. Yeah. That's how like bad the makeup was, but it's not. Anyway, uh, and Todd Caldecott and Tiffany Paulson play Jim and Susie, the opening couple. Tiffany Paulson actually uh, left acting shortly after this movie to become a writer. Hmm. Um, fairly successful career. She wrote the screenplay for the Nancy Drew reboot in 2007. Good for her. Yeah. Then, of course, we have Ace, who played Toby the dog. Um, absolutely stole the film. Don't know why he was there, but, you know. <laughs> And the final casting note is that the short order cook that's killed in the diner, that like- Oh yeah, the big guy. Big guy. That's Ken Kersinger, who ends up playing Jason in Freddy vs. Jason. Good for him. Yeah. So just a fun little nod there. And that rounds out our roll call. Woo. So should we now move into our analysis of the film? Sure. So- this yeah. no. Yeah, Take so I, I had some interesting stuff here because, I mean, despite the fact that the majority of the movie does not take place in Manhattan, <laughs> it, you know, it opens with all those scenes, you know, we eventually do get there and see that stuff. And a lot of it's playing into, um, in the time that, you know, maybe not necessarily when the film takes place, if it takes place, you know, in the 2000s, but when the, the film was, um, you know, shot and released and the, the, the audience seeing it at that time, the, this like Midtown Manhattan, you know, Times Square was like seedy as fuck. Yeah. Um, you know, it had a reputation as a, a very sleazy neighborhood with sex clubs and there was a lot of homeless 
um, encampments. There was a lot of um, drug use and that sort of thing. A lot of just um, bad public perceptions of the area. Um, there was supposedly a fair amount of crime, like the yearly total was like over 2000 reported crimes in the single square block around Times Square. Wow. Um, and basically what happened was like after the Great Depression, New York kind of went from being like the glitzy 1920s New York that you think of to like being very run down and very overcrowded. And it had mm. a lot of, um, you know, poor folks who live there and that sort of thing. And basically it peaked in the seventies and eighties as like, you know, just the, the underbelly of, of the East Coast. And I remember my mom even saying when we would go to Broadway shows, she was like, yeah, when I was, you know, your age, like you wouldn't, you would walk out of the theater and you would walk to your car or wherever you were going with like pepper spray and you wouldn't hang out here or go to a restaurant right. because you didn't want to be there for any longer than you had to. Um, and basically in the 80s, there's like a real attempt to like reverse this or overcome it. Um, in 1989, when this is filmed and released, um, Midtown was like on the cusp of its revitalization, um, which starts in 1991. There's this project called the New 42nd Street, which is aimed or was aimed at rehabilitating 42nd Street between 7th and 8th Avenue, which was the worst part of New York, mm. um, which is funny now considering, you know, 42nd Street is like the sort of like stereotypical New York Broadway street and also is like hella touristy. There's like a Madame yeah. Tussauds there. There's like a Dave and Busters and all this other stuff. But in the eighties, it was like a terrible place. Um, the president of the organization said the street was sex shops and paraphernalia shops and triple X porn shops. It was the kind of street that people didn't, that, that people told their kids to stay away from. Um, it was also in this year that there was a peak dip in hotel rentals and sales and it was the last year for um mayor Koch Koch Ed Koch I don't know how to say oh, his name okay yeah um but he basically was like at the forefront of like the I love NY tourist movement ah. thing um in the 80s and was really trying to like turn the image of the city around um there's an interesting juxtaposition between this and the other film that shares a similar title, which is The Muppets Take Manhattan, <laughs> which came out in 1984, which was kind of like, you know, the thing that was trying to say, like, look how nice Manhattan is, like, you know, and Ed Koch actually, Koch? Koch? I don't know. I'm has not sure. A, has a um, cameo in that movie. That's where they really start to push the I Love NY stuff in that movie. Like, it's very much just a giant tourist um propaganda type thing um which they kind of make fun of in the marketing for this movie because it features jason slashing through an i love ny poster right um which we'll talk about a little bit that poster in the production notes um but basically like you know it's interesting because the sort of like rules of the friday 13th franchise of like who gets killed and why they get killed and what they're doing when they get killed, like really plays into what was going on in New York at the time. Like it's actually kind of a really interesting match. And I think that's why people were kind of upset that this movie like didn't do what the title promised. 
Yeah. Because like, you know, they, they're like, when they go into the diner and, you know, they ask to use the phone and the waitress is like, we don't have a phone. And they're like, we're being chased by a killer, like a, a crazy killer is after us. And she's like, welcome to New York. Oh, and she just doesn't, doesn't really care. Um, you know, like it's, it really, like, it's something that could really work, but they just don't do that for yeah. whatever budgetary reasons. Um, another example of a horror film, albeit a horror comedy film that used New York as kind of its um, setting and launching point was Ghostbusters, which, you know, posited that, you know, everyone was just possessed by ghosts mm -hmm. and the city was just overrun with mischievous poltergeists and that sort of thing. I think Ghostbusters is way more effective yeah. at uh, channeling 80s New York. Yeah. Or maybe not channeling. I mean, like this movie, this movie reflects the sleaze of 80s New York well, but like, I don't know. In Ghostbusters, New York is much more of a character than it is in this Yeah, movie. yeah. Which that's the other thing too. It's all very stereotypical. Like the, you know, guys who, mug them at least one of them is non-white and is like clearly has an accent you know so yeah. they're just clearly playing into you know those stereotypes and that sort of thing um yeah there's some there's some uncomfortable racial stuff um even with julius like mm -hmm. watching it uh for this episode like i thought about um in horror noir, mm -hmm. the uh, documentary when they when they talk about like when a black character, usually a black male character, is used to showcase how strong the villain is. Right. Yeah. Like. Yeah, because literally you have Julius, who we saw earlier, punching people in they, their mock bo boxing match, I guess that they had, and you know he literally wears himself out, and his knuckles are bloody. Um, and it's meant to show us how tough Jason is. Um, yeah, it doesn't phase Jason. Jason barely flinches, and then with one swipe. Yeah, and that's the other thing too is he's one of the few characters whose death we see, you know, yeah. on screen. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, it's not not great in that area for for some things for sure. Um. But you know, that was kind of realized at the time, um, maybe not that deeply, but you know, uh, audiences didn't super love this movie. Yeah. Um, it was released July 28th of 1989, opening number five at the box office for its opening weekend. Uh, not what you want for a movie like this. <clears throat> that being said, uh, Jason Takes Manhattan faced some pretty steep competition uh, in 89 in what was termed the summer of the sequel uh, because it was competing against Nightmare on Elm Street 5, The Dream Child, Halloween 5, Revenge of Michael Myers, and Fright Night 2. So all major horror franchises with sequels and um, pretty sure this one did the worst. It pulled in $14.3 million at the box office, making an approximate $9 million profit, but still making it the poorest performing film uh, in the franchise, which um, would, uh, combined with its reviews, would lead to a very major uh, decision that we'll touch on in just a second. 
Miss Mel, you mentioned the poster, the mm -hmm. famous poster that was used for this film, which is Jason slashing through the I Heart New York um, logo. Um, when that poster was released, the New York Board of Tourism was not happy. <laughs> um, to the point where they officially denounced the film, they actually sued Paramount. Um, wow. Using the logo. Uh, without permission. And so those posters were taken down, but it, it was already out there, it was so famous. Um, they also really didn't like the teaser trailer, which um, involves, it's actually pretty cool. We see like just the back of someone walking through New York mm -hmm. with like creepy music playing and like creepy things coming up on screen and at the very end turns around and it's Jason. Um, they didn't like that either. Uh, and they kind of got what they wanted because the reviews for the movie were overwhelmingly negative. Um, the weak humor was brought up a lot. The plot being very scatterbrained and all over the place and kind of having some holes was cited as a weak point. The failure to deliver on the promise of the title as Miss Mel mentioned, and that Jason as a villain pales in comparison to the real life horror of Urban Duquet in New York. These are all reasons that uh, contemporary reviews did not like the film. If there were positive mentions, it was usually about the promotional material, um, the film's willingness to change the setting um, from Crystal Lake and that the film was unintentionally funny because it was so bad. <laughs> it currently has a Rotten Tomatoes score of 8%, a Metacritic score of 14, an IMDb rating of 4.6, and a letterboxed review rating of 2.2. So it's no surprise that all of this poor reception and the not great box office returns is what led Paramount to sell the rights of the series to New Line Cinema. They would make the next three films in the franchise before um, Paramount would once again regain them for the 2009 remake and then what would result in a legal standoff, um, the reason there have been no new Friday the 13th since 2009, but that's for another episode. Right now, we're going to move into our one good scare segment of the episode. What is the most frightening moment of this film for you, Miss Mel? Um. <laughs> yeah i mean you know <laughs> yeah i'm like racking my brain for like okay well what's gross i mean his face is kind of gross when he takes his mask off and his face is melting because of the toxic waste or whatever yeah that's um, i mean i guess you could argue that like this the scene where the muggers um take ready is pretty scary because that's like an actual thing that could happen and it's like the one time they kind of play into like the actual like dangers of new york um but yeah i don't <laughs> what about you <laughs> uh, yeah i think the muggers are scary because they're more real yeah you know but it has nothing to do with Jason, but I think that's the most disturbing part of the movie. And kind of um, it's odd, like it's a weird tangent to go on with them. Mm -hmm. Like, 
I don't know. Um, now we will attempt our, our segment that we like to try and do called The View from the Closet. How can we view this film from an LGBTQ plus lens? So I was thinking about this because I was like, this is going to be tough. Um, and there are two places where I see okay. a smidge of, of That's this. That's a that I was thinking. <laughs> so one, I feel like there's a little bit of, of homoeroticism in the boxing scene. Um, okay, between yeah. Julius and that guy who just takes the punches. Um, yeah, especially, like, yeah, and then that, that guy's in the sauna and he's yeah. like, hey, Julius, you know, he thinks Julius is joining him. Yeah. Yeah, okay. He's naked in the sauna. Um, the other one is um, Tamara and Ava, you know, sneaking off together, doing drugs together. Ava goes to look for Tamara when, you know, the, the boat is going, you know, the alarms are going off. And, you know, they really have no reason to be friends. She's the prom queen and Ava's like kind of a nerd, we kind of understand. Yeah. So. Maybe there's something more going on there. I don't know. Maybe there was something more going on there. Okay. Maybe something between Colleen and Dusen and Rennie. And Rennie, maybe, yeah. Maybe it's like some sort of sapphic teacher-student thing. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I like it. We found something. Yeah. And an otherwise... If they kept the subplot of Sean being an Olympic diver, maybe there would be more. Like, what does yeah. that entail? Were there scenes of him diving? <laughs> Sure. Yeah, you could go with you could go with Sean. He he he's fighting against the expectations of his father. Mm. He, he's not what his father wants him to be. There, there's a potential queer reading there. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we did it. So Let's yeah, find something. That one was a challenge, and we did it. And we did it. <laughs> now we'll go into legacy. Legacy. What is a legacy? And talk a bit about the. Uh, lasting impact of this film and um, you know what's gone on with it since its release in 89. Um, the film was released on VHS by Paramount Home Video in 1994 and on DVD in 2002. On October 2004 it was released on the Crystal Lake to Manhattan box set which featured the first eight films of the franchise uh, and an audio commentary from uh, director Rob Hedden. A deluxe DVD was released in September of 2009, which also had the commentary, a making of documentary, a gag reel, and deleted scenes. Uh, it remains the only Friday the 13th film to have a gag reel out there. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, it was released on a double feature Blu-ray in September of 2015, along with The New Blood, it was included in the complete collection Blu-ray set in 2013, which is the one I have, as well as the ultimate collection Blu-ray set uh, in 2018. That was from Paramount, so it just has the first eight films. In 2007, Entertainment Weekly named Jason Takes Manhattan the eighth worst sequel ever made. The eighth worst. Yeah. What Didn't get what the worst sequel ever made but in 2018, Scott Menslow, a writer for GQ, wrote a defense of Jason Takes Manhattan, calling it the most stylish entry in the Friday the 13th franchise, praising the creative kills, the element of claustrophobia for the cruise ship setting, and the wicked sense of humor regarding uh, New York in the 80s. So this film has its defenders out there as much as it does its detractors. 
Miss um, Mo, you also made a great note that um, this film is an example of the slasher genre's decline. Um, yeah. Do you want to touch on that? Yeah, so I mean, it's interesting. It's 1989. You know, we started this decade with Halloween, basically, Friday the 13th. Early in the decade, you know, comes Nightmare on Elm Street. And now by the end of the decade, we're on like the eighth um, movie of this franchise. The fourth one of um, Nightmare on Elm Street is coming out, the fifth Halloween, you know, and all this stuff. And you know, kind of after this in the 90s, up until the release of Scream, um, they're kind of doing direct-to-video sequels for the most part. They're doing, you know, they're st still doing some, um, you know, theatrical releases, but it's really like diminishing returns. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think you see that really well in this movie. Yeah. Because, uh, Man, this movie's bad. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, so that's kind of the legacy of this film. Um, before we hit our closing questions, any other fun facts or points that we've missed that we feel like we need to be brought up in regards to Jason Takes Manhattan? I, I think we're good. <laughs> we, we hit it all. It's, um, this is definitely the worst one so far yeah but not the worst one no <laughs> um all right well in that case let's hit our closing question something to bring us out of our discussion miss no it's your turn yes so my question for you is if you could pick any location to like sort of pull jason out of and pluck plop him into where would you want to see him that's a good one all right, I would want to see Jason take Disney World. Or, I mean, like, you know, you probably couldn't use Disney World. Like yeah, a but something like that. Yeah. I'd want to, yeah, I think I'd want to see him in like a over the top, happy amusement park, you know, mm -hmm. that's like cartoon based and princesses you know and like maybe there's like a creepy section like haunted mansion style so people mistake him as like an actor you know in the park mm -hmm. or whatever maybe it's after hours and he's hunting the people that work at the park something like that i think i i think that would be a fun concept yeah. for yeah. the 13th movie i'm into that how about you where would you put him um, I was thinking just because I'm thinking of like the hulking, slow moving Jason now, because that's what he is in this. Like, let's just yeah. go with that. Um, like a sort of Arctic setting, like the thing to kind of get that sort of Frankenstein yes. vibe to it and, you know, have one of those things go down. I think that could be interesting. There is a fantastic fan movie. If you haven't seen or and anyone listening as well called never hike in the snow and it is it, it is jason Voorhees in wintertime it's funny it, because he is kind of the quintessential summer horror right guy but you know yeah that's, there were these fans that they were like well what if we put him in the snow yeah and they made this fan film it's really good quality i it, it should be on youtube i believe um okay. so 
check that out. You can get your wish. Yeah. All right. Now I know what I'm doing. Yeah. It's pretty good. I like it. I think they did a sequel as well. Never hike alone, maybe, or maybe that, or maybe the snow one was maybe the sequel. Either way, there's one of him in the snow. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So I think that's going to wrap up our um, discussion on Friday the 13th, part eight, Jason takes Manhattan. If you have thoughts about this crazy installment in the Friday the 13th series, please share them with us on our various social media. Miss Mel's going to tell you where you can find us. You can do that on Twitter at Slatter Chatter 666, minus all the vowels in those words. But just Google us, we'll pop right. Don't Google us. Well, you can Google us, but search us on Twitter and we'll pop right up. Um, you can find us on uh, Instagram now at splatterchatter666. Uh, you can email at splatterchatter669 at gmail.com. We're on Tumblr at splatterchatter.tumblr.com. And we have a blog at splatter-chatter.com. Got them sure. all. And if you want to support the show, you can do so on our Patreon, splatterchatter666, or you can leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Mm-hmm. Now... This finishes this Friday the 13th special. The next Friday the 13th is in May of 2022. When that rolls around, we will be covering part nine, Jason Goes to Hell, the final Friday. The other final. The other final, which like final chapter, was not the final movie. No. (laughs) And as for our next episode in September, um, we haven't nailed down what we're covering. I've got a few ideas, but I need to run them by Miss Mel. So mm-hmm. we're not going to say anything just now. Instead, what we will do is to remind you guys to keep up the creep. And for now, we will say au revoir, adios, and hasta 